Welcome to Beyond the Page, a podcast from People's World. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Chauncey K. Robinson. Beyond the Page is the podcast companion to People's World. Beyond the Page brings you in-depth interviews with journalists and activists on the most pressing stories on progressive politics, labor, and the struggle for socialism in the United States. In this episode, we're bringing you stories on the economy and judging economic health with Mark Greenberg. We're bringing you a story on the struggle of Amazon workers to win a safe workplace from Al Neal. And finally, uh, we have a cool story about voter suppression in Florida with John Bechtel. First, we're joined by Mark Grunberg, the author of a recent article called The Latest Jobs Data Gives the Lie to Trump's Great Economy. Um, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Great. Welcome. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, great. Well, you wrote this great piece, and I guess we wanted to talk to you a little bit about it. So Trump is always going on and on uh, to talk about how the economy is turning around and recovering. But as you've written, the jobs data tells a little bit of a different story. So could you explain what's going on there? Um, is the economy recovering from COVID or not? Not. Uh, first, let's get one thing out of the way. He keeps talking about both the stock market and the lower and the reduced unemployment rate. What he doesn't talk about is the number of people who are still getting federal unemployment aid. And that's 26 million people. And if you do the if you do the math, take that number and divide it over the entire workforce, you get 18 percent, 17 to 18 percent of the country getting jobless checks. Here's the second part of it. Stock market notwithstanding, many of those people by December 1st, which isn't that far away, aren't going to get anything at all from the federal government. Remember those $600 checks that people have been getting since March? They're going to be gone. So they're going to be people, and this is the point of the story, who, who if they get state unemployment aid, could, depending on the state involved, where they live, have to try to exist on as little as $5 a week. I defy anybody to try to exist on $5 a week. It's not doable in so many words. And that is being totally ignored by Trump and, frankly, by the Republicans in Congress, who have basically stopped the legislation that would renew the, would re, renew those $600, those $600 weekly checks. That's yeah. the story in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah, five dollars. Wow. Uh, you know, Trump and other Republicans cite the stock market's increases as evidence of a, a good economy, right? So, is that the right way to think about economic health? You know, if not, you know, what does it tell us? What does the stock market tell us? The stock market. I've always figured the stock market is a big casino, with <laughs> it. and and the and the brokers on Wall Street are playing with loaded dice, loaded loaded against you and me and the and the rest of the country. Um, it doesn't it tells us basically what the investor class is interested in. It doesn't tell us what regular people are, are interested in. Now, indirectly, there are pension plans that invest in the stock market, but they invest in mutual funds which spread things out rather than individual stocks. So, you know, the mutual funds are more invested are more interested in returns than they are in, say, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. To me, the stock market basically doesn't tell us all that much in so many words. And 
the rest of the economy does, and the rest of the economy is people like you and me, and and who have to figure out how to get along from day to day. I think that's really helpful. You know, when when Trump says something, you know, about the stock market or whatever, um, it it sounds good, right? right. <laughs> so it it makes sense that people might be excited about that. I mean, so much of economics, I think, to regular folks, or at least to me, is basically magic. So <laughs> it helps to have it demystified <laughs> a little bit. Um. Well, you know, you reported on these job numbers in early October, um, and now, you know, we're kind of in the mid-October kind of time, right. um, depending on what time people are listening to this, who knows. But uh, how have things shaped up since then? Is there any reason to think that, you know, the, the economy or unemployment numbers will get better or worse? Is there any uh, hope on new negotiations for stimulus packages for COVID or any, anything like that? Uh, let me answer the second question first. Um, sure. The negotiations have been off and on and off and on and off and on. They were actually getting somewhere through this past Tuesday. Today is, of course, October 12th, so this last Tuesday was October 6th, when Trump pulled the plug until after the election. Now, since then, Speaker Pelosi and Trump's Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, Stephen Mnuchin, have tried to restart the talks. They seem to be getting agreement in bits and pieces, but it's not going to happen before the election. We are 22 days out. The the Senate, which is the roadblock, is not in session except for the Judiciary Committee, which is busy holding hearings on Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, even as we speak. Um, The regular numbers, the money that people expect, is still not going to be there. Before, no, before November 3rd, probably not before December 1st either, because we don't know when Congress is coming back. So anybody who was planning to try to depend on unemployment, especially the federal unemployment checks, is up the creek without the proverbial paddle. Okay, that's the second question. Your first one was? How are the job numbers shaping up? Do you think they're going to change or, uh, or it's going to look just as bad? It's going to be just as bad because the number that we quoted in the story, the 26 million, is about two weeks behind what the new applications are. So in other words, since those 26 million who have been receiving checks were were put in that table by the Labor Department, another million million plus change, say a million three each week, have applied for money. So... That table went through mid-September, then you got to add 1.3, and then 1.3 again to get you to early October. So the answer is no, it's not going to change. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Very bleak. Very bleak. And this is the reality that people are facing here, and and that uh, the Senate, or at least its majority, are ignoring. Mm. That's a really helpful and very grim picture of the situation, I guess. But um, but it's it's good to have that type of uh, reality that right. we know what's actually happening. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And um, thank you so much for the reporting that you did. I think it's really fantastic and helpful. Um, oh, you're welcome. Thank this you, Mark. Went, this went faster than I expected. <laughs> That's fine. I'm happy to do it. So. Now we're joined by Al Neal. Uh, Al wrote a really neat piece a few weeks back called Nearly 20,000 Amazon Workers Infected with Coronavirus. I say neat, but it's actually horrifying. Um, so don't want to downplay that. Anyways, uh, Al, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. 
Yeah. Um, all right, let's just get right down to it. Um, a few months ago, on May 1st, there was a historical show of worker power when Amazon workers, along with workers from other industries, walked off the job and went on strike. Um, it was kind of everywhere, hard to, a hard-to-miss day on May 1st. Um, a lot of those strikers, though, were calling for more preventative measures to be taken in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, yet, since this walk-off, there has been an explosion of COVID cases at Amazon, so it doesn't seem like they really got what they were asking for. Um, I don't know. What's going on with this story? How did this all happen? Uh, why isn't Amazon listening to their workers? Well, I think the uh, the easy one to answer is why isn't Amazon listening to its workers? It's because as in Amazon doesn't care about its workers. It just pretends to care about its workers. You know, and as far as the cases exploding at COVID, you know, the infection rate has gone up there. And a lot of it has to deal with mismanagement all the way at the top. So we're looking at the Trump administration and their complete inept leadership when it comes to uh, putting forward meaningful uh, steps to prevent COVID, especially in the workplace. We look at the Trump Department of Labor, which is a business-friendly government agency now, and all those subdivisions, especially in health and regulatory, uh, no longer are taking the steps necessary to ensure that companies are making adequate um, preparations for workers to go in, to be safe, to have the necessary PPE, you know, protection, uh, personal protective equipment, et cetera. You know, and going back to May 1st, a little bit earlier, uh, workers in Chicago in March actually organized uh, a petition drive calling on Amazon to provide unlimited pay time off and a wage increase, which they did win. So they got a $2 increase back in March for working through the pandemic. And they also received unlimited uh, PTO without penalty uh, because of that. We fast forward uh, to May 1st, International Workers Day. There was a huge outpouring of community support, allied support, you know, unions from other industries. They walked off calling on the company to do more, right? Obviously, whatever they were doing wasn't working, right? The incentive pay is great. Pay time off is great. But there wasn't being enough done within the warehouses nationwide to begin with. Uh, and the workers on May 1st were calling that any infections that were detected at any warehouse, that those warehouses be shut down for the requisite 14 days to make sure that everyone gets tested and everyone is safe and that the community within that warehouse isn't affected by it. Well, that never happened. Uh, and then we move into June and that $2 raise and that PTO incentive was phased out immediately. So from March to June, right around the time where the public narrative was celebrating essential workers and really pushing forward that messaging uh, to encourage business, especially online retail, you know, we saw this this proposed and fake goodwill from the company. But then as soon as we saw a slight dip in COVID uh, and then other political scandals started to take the public's attention away from uh, from these workers, you know, everything just kind of sort of phased out without much uh, fanfare or coverage. Yeah. So, you know, in your article, you quote Mark Perrone, the president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, saying that our elected officials should hold Jeff Bezos accountable. So what do you think that might mean in this context? You know, how can the richest capitalists in the world be held accountable? That's a really good question. And it's also very tricky, especially given uh, the current administration. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, as, as Perone is saying, you know, absolutely. You know, these these capitalists that are exploiting working people just to get richer, not that they need any more money as it is. Uh, you know, there are no mechanisms in place currently to adequately punish violations which impact uh, a worker's health, especially during a pandemic. And I say that because 
under the Trump administration, not only have we seen uh, weaponization of the Supreme Court, but of also the federal and appellate courts, but we've also seen a weaponization and a politicization of the National Labor Relations Board. As it stands, it's a conservative board. It is a business-friendly board. You know, if we look at not only uh, Amazon, but uh, the 5 for 15, you know, this, this Republican conservative labor board overturned the joint employer provision that McDonald's workers and fast food workers have been fighting for, making it harder for them to organize. And it's similar here. It's impossible to hold Jeff Bezos accountable when there are no mechanisms in place that would actually hit them where it hurts. You know, this you look at other countries such as uh, South Korea. For example, if a, uh, an employer or a boss is found guilty of any type of unfair labor practice, they are hit with a massive fine, including jail time. That's unheard of here. You know, anytime a worker files an unfair labor practice, most often what happens is if they're found guilty, they get a slap on the wrist and have to post a sign up for 14 days saying that they promise not to violate workers' rights, which we know will happen as soon as they have to take that posting down. You know, and so. What it really comes down to right now is Amazon workers having to organize on the long term. You know, right now, uh, Amazon's United, Amazonians United, which is the organization working to organize Amazon workers nationwide, you know, is is digging in for a long haul, similar to the Fight for 15, where they're calling on non-traditional forms of organizing and looking to community support as well as uh, political support moving forward. You know, again, everything is, you know, looked at through this upcoming presidential election, uh, you know, and including Perón and a lot of other labor leaders view a Biden win and a Biden presidency, uh, an opening salvo in closing some of these reopened loopholes that are preventing workers from getting any justice on the job. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Some people might be listening to you talk about, you know, the um, the health and safety of Amazon workers or workers anywhere at this point. Um, during coronavirus, and they might be thinking like, well, but where's OSHA, right? That's like a federal organization that's there to kind of call out these things. So, uh, Al, where is OSHA? What's uh, How does that play into this whole situation? That's a very good question. I think a lot of workers, including myself, are wondering, where is OSHA? You know, and again, OSHA falls under uh, the authority of the Department of Labor, and currently the Department of Labor is also business-friendly uh, so it's not surprising that we don't see OSHA cracking down as harshly as it should for these violations. You know, a lot of those mechanisms that gave it authority have been, you know, scaled back. Essentially, they've they've had their knees cut out from under them. So while, you know, regional offices may be wanting to push forward charges and maybe wanting to file complaints, you know, everything has to go to the top. And if the top says we're not going to we're not going to file this or we're not going to take this all the way and sit to a resolution, because we don't want to piss anyone off at the top, or we don't want to lose our political influence and prestige from the White House, then it's not going to go anywhere. And I think you're seeing that uh, more often than not uh, throughout the four years of this uh, this disastrous presidency. Uh, thanks, Al. Uh, it's a really tough situation, and uh, I hope things turn around, and I hope that the Amazonian United and workers everywhere keep building power to uh, sort of fight back against this very... Uh, unsafe and corrupt uh, system where their lives are, you know, put on the line for uh, for their employers' profits. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate the work you've done here. Yeah, thanks, oh, Al. Thank you. Oh, and thank you for having me. Today we're joined by John Batchel, uh, and he's going to tell us a little bit about an article he wrote a few weeks back on uh, Florida, uh, on the campaign in Florida, and uh, some 
uh, voter suppression that's been happening there. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. Great. So there's a lot at stake in the upcoming election in November, especially in Florida, which is, uh, as we all know, a swing state. Um, but beyond simply the presidential election, Floridians are getting the opportunity to vote on an amendment to their state constitution that would raise the minimum wage $15 an hour. And there's a whole bunch of other amendments and important things going on in, in the Florida race. But as you mentioned in your article, uh, returning citizens and the previously incarcerated are facing some massive voter disenfranchisement. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, well, uh, readers may, uh, in your audience, may know that um, the voter suppression uh, laws in the state of Florida um, mirror a lot of the voter suppression tactics that have been um, uh, carried out, uh, particularly in the southern states, but, you know, many other places around the country. Um, and they're rooted really in the post-Civil War period and effort to dis disenfranchise um, mainly African-American voters. Um, and uh, this goes back, uh, as I said, back to in Florida itself, back to 1868, uh, when the when the state um, incorporated in its constitution a series of a set of, of laws uh, which uh, disenfranchised African-Americans, uh, particularly those who were convicted of felony laws, uh, who lost their right to vote for lifetime. Uh, but there were also part of, a, um, you know, other laws, including poll taxes and illiteracy um, uh, restrictions and, and so on, which was meant to uh, eliminate African-American voters. And so by 1880, um, you know, the African-American uh, voters were actually the majority, um, but by 1880 uh, had been uh, reduced to zero, you know, zero votes. So this, this thing has uh, its roots that go way back. And um, Amendment 4, uh, which was passed by uh, the voters in Florida by two-thirds, it was by a landslide, was was meant to restore the voting rights for 1.4 million returning citizens uh, who were uh, two-thirds of them uh, were African-American and Latino voters. Um, and that passed in 2018. Um, it was really an amazing victory and actually the largest restoration of voting rights uh, in 50 years in the United States. Uh, but the Republicans went to work right away and um, they passed uh, legislation which put restrictions on this. Um, and so that uh, it imposed this restriction that um, returning citizens had to pay all uh, fines, restitution and fees uh, so there's at least half of the returning citizens who have some restitution fees and fines. Um, and uh, so they've been effectively disenfranchised going into this this election. There were a series of court battles and finally an appeals court imposed this uh, upheld upheld this law. So that's kind of where things stand um, currently. There's been a whole movement. Um, to try to repay these uh, fines, fees, and restitution. Um, but uh, a lot of it's up in the air, and I can go into that more, but um, uh, it's kind of a, 
a mixed bag at this point. Great. And um, the way this decision targets people of color is pretty significant. You already like touched on that with the uh, uh, how it addresses like African-Americans and also Latino voters and whatnot, um, who tends to be in incarceration at a higher rate. Uh, do you think this is a continuation of Jim Crow era laws, um, something else altogether, you know, um, targeting uh, people of color in particular? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, this particular disenfranchisement law goes all the way back to 1868. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that uh, I found in my research was that um, there was a study that was done by the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, which uh, after the Voting Rights Act of 1964, 65, uh, was passed, um, it actually reduced the uh, level of disenfranchisement uh, radically. And, um, but between um, uh, 19, between that period and I think it was 1970 or so, um, well, no, after 1970, between 1970 and, you know, the early 2000s, um, the number of disenfranchised um, voters went up uh, markedly to, and they and they uh, tabulated about 6.1 uh, million uh, disenfranchised uh, voters based on felony convictions um, as of 2016. Um, now there's been some restoration since then. A number of states have passed legislation. There have been some executive orders that have reduced that somewhat, but we're still talking about millions of voters. Uh, and among African-American voters, for example, uh, one in uh, five African-American adult uh, adults who are uh, eligible to vote uh, have been disenfranchised. And in um, Florida, it's one in four, I think, something like that. So these, these, these uh, laws are, are, are uh, particularly targeted you know, to disenfranchising African-American voters and other voters of color and also, um, you know, students and whatnot, but particularly uh, African-American voters. But I, I had mentioned that, um, you know, the study by the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center um, that determined that as of 2016, there were 6.1 million um, disenfranchised uh, voters who were disenfranchised as a result of these felony uh, convictions and uh, laws that you know surrounded that, and uh, you know it had dropped from 1960 to 1976 uh, to 1.6 million, but then after that it began growing again, and um, part of that or a lot of it actually was re really related to the growth of the prison industrial complex and the, the so-called war on drugs, you know, where uh, mass incarceration took off and, you know, it resulted in, um, you know, uh, this huge number, you know, people by, by 2016. Um, so uh, it was, in, in essence, that was uh, also a backlash, you know, to the unorganized backlash by the right wing uh, to the uh, achievement of the Voting Rights Act and everything that followed, which included uh, the election of thousands of African-American elected officials, especially all across the South. Um, 
And uh, I think it reflects also the fact that uh, in, uh, I think it was in 2009, um, you know, Alec, uh, which is the front organization of the Koch brothers, um, you know, they began developing this elaborate um, uh, voter restriction um, policy and developing these cooker cut, cookie cutter type legislation that were introduced into states all across the country that resulted in um, voter suppression laws. Um, so that that's more more recent incarnation of all that. Uh, and it's had its effect, you know, and so this is what we're battling now. And we're we're in the, the middle of this big fight, you know, that and everybody recognizes it, you know, for what it is. And then and the Republicans are, are attempting to use these laws to, to you know, to, to stay in power uh, in the face of changing demographics. And, you know, the fact that they're they lose uh, the majority of votes nationally now, but to try to um, suppress the vote and uh, also try to win through the electoral college. Um, so this is a really, it's a central battle, you know, in the fight for democracy in this country and also, uh, you know, to defeat the extreme right. So that that was one thing I wanted to, to underscore. Uh, thanks. That's a kind of helpful way to get a, a handle on the situation and what's really at stake. Um, well, you know, those are the terms that have been set and that's kind of the, uh, what, what everyone's up against in Florida, I guess, what are activists and advocates doing there to fight back against this newest wave of voter suppression? Well, uh, I think one of the most, uh, uh, incredible developments actually is the, um, you know, this, uh, fight against, uh, uh, disenfranchisement of, of returning citizens. It's actually being initiated and led by uh, the returning citizens themselves. So there's an organization called the Florida um, Rights Restoration Coalition, uh, which was, as I said, set up by returning citizens. And they've been working for, I think, maybe about 20 years uh, to try to overturn um, these laws in the state of Florida. And they were the ones who uh, initiated this Amendment 4, which was on the ballot in 20, 2018. Um, so uh, they've been in, engaged in these uh, court fights, you know, ever since. And um, and then when this final ruling came down, uh, actually helped to set up a, a fund um, to to pay for the fees and fines, you know, of of these uh, returning citizens. Uh, they've been working with um, returning citizens to try to figure out um, exactly how much is owed and then to get them paid and to get people registered and educated about their their rights uh, and also the issues and whatnot. Um, in his ruling in uh, May, the federal judge Robert Hinkle, uh, who um, you know put a a stay on uh, the uh, Republican legislation, called um, this legislation, uh, an administrative train wreck. And one of the reasons why is because um, there is no central database in the state of Florida of returning citizens to, to know exactly how much they owe in fines, restoration, restoration and fees. Um, that's all held uh, in each county. Um, and each county has their own system of holding the, the information. Some of it's on 
uh, index, index cards stored in warehouses, and it's really difficult for uh, people to determine exactly what they owe. Um, but the coalition is doing its best uh, to, to try to restore as many rights uh, as they can, uh, voting rights as they can. Uh, you know, for this election now, the the voter registration deadline was October 5th. And even leading up to that, there were all kinds of, you know, Florida's a mess. I mean, the Florida elect election systems is a real mess, as we know, it goes back uh, decades and uh, including to the 2000 election and so on. But um, they had a, a, you could actually register to vote, you know, online. And they had so many people that uh, wanted to vote up until the deadline that the system crashed and they were forced to extend, um, you know, the deadline for another day. But there's there's thousands of people that even as a result of that, you know, are, are being denied the right to vote in this up, upcoming election. So this fight's going on and, and uh, this coalition, um, the Florida uh, Restor uh, Rights Restoration Coalition is, um, you know, uh, gonna continue the fight and it's gonna go on, you know, for uh, many years to come. John, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and telling us about uh, what's going on in Florida. It seems like a, a real tough situation, but I appreciate the reporting on it. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you like what you heard, follow People's World on social media. And remember, we take sides. Yours.